Good afternoon, Tri-States. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. This is Ken down here in Missouri, reading, though, from the Friday, February 16th edition of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. And this is brought to you in part by Dupaco and the R.W. Hafer Foundation. Now, let's begin with our first piece from above the fold of page one. Supervisors divided on proposal to increase some employee wages. Dubuque County Supervisors intend to seek more information before taking any action on recommended pay increases for county employees. The Board of Supervisors previously contracted with Carlson Detman Consulting to analyze the competitiveness of the county's employee compensation. To be competitive in the labor market, the firm determined that Dubuque County should aim to pay staff in the 75th percentile of comparable private and public employees. Supervisors discussed the recommended pay increases during a budget work session this week. Supervisor Wayne Kanneker motioned to approve the plan as presented, but the motion died for lack of a second, with fellow supervisors Harley Potoff and Ann McDonough raising concerns about the process that led to the firm's recommendations. I don't understand it from A to Z, and I'm not sure I understand it from A to B, honestly, McDonough said. I don't intend to support this unless there's some significant improvements made to communication. Carlson Detman's recommendation focused on the county's 72 non-union positions held by 99 employees. Based on that report, County Human Resources Director Chelsea Green created a proposal placing most of the 72 positions on a raise schedule that would give each at least a 4% cost of living increase in the fiscal year starting July 1. If it would take a 10% increase or more to get a position's compensation to the 75th percentile, the base raise would be provided over two years. Overall, Green's proposal would add a total of $451,579 to the county budget for fiscal year 2025, which county officials are currently in the midst of developing. Kenneker called the study sound and fair and said he believed it would create consistent wage scales for positions while keeping the county's pay competitive. I see this as an initial positive step toward accomplishing what we set out to do, to put the salaries in a spot where we can comfortably retain and recruit employees, he said. Later adding, the majority of employees are going to be in favor of this pay plan. It's going to tell them consistently where they're at, where they're headed, and for a new employee, where they start. However, Potoff and McDonough expressed reservations, with McDonough calling the report extraordinarily incomplete 
and questioning why certain positions had been categorized the way they were and what employees would think if some people received bigger raises than others. I have been contacted endlessly by many department heads with extreme concerns about what this does for morale, what it does for recruitment and retention, she said. I'm not sure it helped with that at all. Potoff agreed. He questioned some decisions regarding wage increases, including for positions that are currently unfilled or only recently were created. I'm not fully understanding how some people end up where they end up, he said. When Kenneker asked Potoff about which positions he had concerns, Potoff said he did not want to discuss specific employees or personnel matters in open session. Green said Carlson Detman's recommendation examined factors such as job market, education, experience, job function, and location. She added that the pay scale was based on position, not the person currently holding that role. This plan doesn't take anyone backwards, she said. It's unfortunate that we're going to get stuck on a couple of positions here when it's going to impact 99 employees positively. Both McDonough and Potoff asked to meet again with representatives from Carlson Detman, who initially presented the report to the supervisors earlier this month. McDonough also called for Carlson Detman officials to meet with county department heads. Green said she would work to set up a meeting with Carlson Detman representatives in the coming days. Our second front page piece, Education Bills Advance in Legislature, from Des Moines. The Iowa legislature spent much of the past week advancing dozens of different education policy and school funding measures, some controversial, before this session's deadline for committee passage of bills to be considered. Highlights included a busy day in the Iowa House Education Committee on Thursday, moving bills for a 3% increase to per-pupil state funding for public schools, nearly a week after the legislature's deadline to set that rate, eliminating that frequently missed deadline, a toned-down version of Republican Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' reform of area education agencies, and increasing the minimum pay for teachers and other school employees. Republicans also introduced controversial bills that would restrict what schools can teach students in history and sexual education classes and worked on plans to keep more sexual material and social media bullying away from Iowa kids. The week also included the annual Day on the Hill for Iowa's AEAs, which provide public and private school districts with special education and other services. This drew several area school leaders there on what would be a consequential week for them. It does seem a little more important than usual, Keystone AEA Administrator Stan Reingens told the Telegraph Herald, referring to the state's nine AEA's annual Agavacy Day. 
West Delaware Community School District students and welding program teacher Seth Harms attended the event, showcasing the equipment that was funded by their AEA's media services budget. And Western Dubuque Community School District Superintendent Dan Butler attended the event to advocate for both AEA's and his district's general interests. During Thursday afternoon's House Education Committee meeting, Committee Chairman Schuyler Wheeler, Republican Hall, managed his chamber's version of the AEA reform. It mandated that AEAs provide special education services and that school districts contract them, but removed measures of Reynolds' proposals by which the State Department of Education would absorb many AEA leadership positions which she and some area Republican lawmakers contend are paid too much. Under the House's amended bill, the Department of Education would still absorb five positions from each AEA. The bill also would give school districts one year to decide how they want to source media services and two years to decide on other education services they currently get from AEAs. After AEA and public education leaders said past proposals' timelines were too rushed, Rangans told the TH that those previous proposals' timelines had worried him. We're looking for consistency of funding and rules, he said. If you think of some of our employees, some of them have doctorates. Their training is in mental health or physical therapy or other in-demand fields. So they have a lot of options. If we can't figure this out soon, they might leave us and leave education, maybe go to another state. Wheeler said during the meeting that he had changed the proposed bill in response to some concerns voiced by AEA and school leaders. This does not dismantle the AEAs, he said. Everybody's been brought to the table. I've never once looked at this as a political issue. I've never once thought of this as a philosophical issue. My only goal is to improve educational outcomes. Democrats on the committee, though, worried that the bill still would give too much of AEA's current authority to the Department of Education, where appointed officials might not have the appropriate training. If we are going to give so much to the DE, I would hope we could require them to have some of the training in special education and other fields, which AEA staff must have, said Iowa Representative Molly Buck, Democrat Ankeny, who is a teacher herself. The House Education Committee proposed a 3% increase to state supplemental aid to schools, which Wheeler said would equal $7,864 per pupil. Iowa Representative Steve Bradley, Republican Cascade, serves on the House Education Committee and told the TH that he thought the increase appropriate. That will be a good increase for our schools, he said. Democrats on the committee said the 3% increase doesn't cover the cost of doing business, and said they wanted a bigger increase. 
Senate Minority Leader Pam Yoakum, Democrat Dubuque, said recently that Democratic lawmakers hoped for a 5% increase. The House committee also advanced a separate bill that would increase the minimum base pay for starting teachers, the pay for teachers well into their careers, and the minimum base pay for school districts' other employees. The last measure would address a concern Butler shared with the TH at the Capitol this week. We want to pay our teachers more, but I would say give us the money for it SSA, because we have many more employees that just than just teachers who deserve a raise as well, he said. Republicans on the House committee also advanced a bill that would require public schools to teach sexual education curricula produced by an anti-abortion rights group. Iowa Representative Ann Osmondson Republican Volga managed that bill through committee and defended it from Democrats' critiques. I don't see that it's one-sided, she said. This teaching is basic biology and answers one of life's biggest questions, which is, where did I come from? Bills advanced this week now qualify for debate in their chamber. And our final front page piece Group planting seeds for sustainable ag. And with it comes this large, long-distance shot of Cincinnati Mound. And the caption beneath it, we see farm buildings and agricultural areas. And the caption beneath it reads, Cincinnati Mound's collaborative farm for small-scale farmers is located in Cincinnati, Wisconsin. A farmer-led group aims to open an agricultural learning center at Cincinnati Mound focused on soil health and sustainable agriculture. And our article reads, A farmer-led regenerative agriculture group is putting down roots at a well-known area religious site. Fields of Cincinnati is working to open an agricultural learning center at Cincinnati Mound with a focus on soil health and sustainable agriculture. The project is being completed in collaboration with the Cincinnati Dominican Sisters, who own nearly 500 acres on and around the mound. The driver is to help people on their journey to implementing better practices for soil health, so we can have healthier foods and healthier people, said Fields of Cincinnati co-chair Carl Dollafield. We're at the very beginning stages of this, but we're excited to get this out there. The goal is to create a nonprofit education center for farmers from across the country to meet and discuss regenerative agriculture practices, Dollafield said. In addition to conference-style events, the group plans to host field days, live demonstrations, and other hands-on educational opportunities. The land would remain under Dominican ownership and control, while the nonprofit would lead programming. The project is inspired by the late David Brandt, a well-known name in the world of sustainable agriculture and soil health. Before his death, Brandt visited Cincinnati Mound and developed a healthy admiration for the sisters' 
focus on environmental stewardship. Brandt began to envision a farmer-led education center at the mound, but he died last year before he could bring it to fruition. His peers and loved ones, however, kept it going in his honor. Jay Brandt, David's son, is actually one of our committee members, said Sister Sheila Fitzgerald, one of the steering committee's Cincinnati Dominican representatives. It's a beautiful way to carry on his mission. The steering committee also includes farmers from Iowa, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, as well as national representatives from various agricultural and soil health groups. The committee includes several subgroups dedicated to the project's various aspects. Dennis Rowan of Farley, Iowa, works with the Land and Farming Group to communicate with farmers who currently farm on or around the mound to determine how best to integrate their operations with the nonprofit's efforts. Rowan said a large focus of the group will be soil health and its intersection with practices related to tilling, cover crops, and more. We're thinking about what we're leaving for the rest of, or for the next generation, he said. We lost a lot of our topsoil in the last 50 years, and if we continue at this pace for the next 50 years, there won't be much left. Rowan added that he believes the farmer-led nature of the fields of Cincinnati Group will increase the likelihood other producers will seek out or observe the collaborative as a source of solid farm-tested information. It's not just someone coming in and telling you what you have to do without any agricultural background. Many of the farmers on this team have been doing this for years, he said. We're hoping that means people will pay attention and listen to what we have to say. Delafeld, a Dubuque County livestock producer, echoed Rowan's sentiment and added that the group's credibility will be further complemented by its flexibility. The goal isn't to promote a one-size-fits-all approach, he explained, but instead to offer educational opportunities for farmers on the myriad ways to simultaneously improve their operations, sustainability, and profitability. To me, there isn't one way you have to farm to be regenerative, Delafeld said. There's a lot of great folks in this organization, so we have a lot of different ideas to share. Delafeld also said that while the goal eventually is to reach audiences nationwide, there will be a particular focus on connecting with local producers, as well as surrounding community members more broadly who are interested in healthy food systems. For the Dominican Sisters of Cincinnati, Fitzgerald said, the effort marks a continuation of the sisters' focus on promoting land stewardship and sustainability that has marked the group's nearly two centuries on the mound. Already, Cincinnati Mound includes a collaborative farm for small-scale farmers and a larger certified organic acreage rented to existing tenants who fields of Cincinnati intend to collaborate with moving forward. Our mission has always been education and outreach, Fitzgerald said. 
This project shares a powerful message to the community that affects not only farmers, but the whole food system and people more broadly. The group now is raising funds to hire an administrative director and cover startup costs, Fitzgerald said. The goal is to host the collaborative's first set of educational events in the latter half of this year. Now we have one piece from our Dubuque and Tri-State page. It's accompanied with a picture of the Dutrack Community Credit Union's new Branch on Wheels, a van that was parked on Thursday at its Holiday Drive location in Dubuque. And our article's title, Dutrack Rolls Out New Mobile Financial Operation. An area credit union is rolling out a new initiative in hopes of meeting members where they are. Dutrack Community Credit Union this week announced its new mobile branch, which company staff members call a credit union on wheels. The 29-foot custom vehicle is equipped with everything needed to offer visitors a full-service banking experience. The plan is to take the vehicle across our charter service area and reach those folks who have more remote access to a brick-and-mortar location, said Dutrack Senior Vice President of Marketing, Jason Norton. We wanted to bring our business to where the members are. Dutrack offers services across a wide swath of the tri-state area and beyond, Norton explained. But not all members within that area live near a physical branch location. Mobile unit staff can meet those clients where they are for increased convenience and customized service. Norton said the plan is to identify a regular schedule for the mobile branch so community members know when it will be in their area. Dutrack also intends to send the vehicle to a variety of community events, such as parades, county fairs, or farmers markets. Dutrack staff then would be available for a wide range of financial services or educational programs. The exterior of the vehicle is equipped with a large monitor and awning for group conversations or programming. For pretty much any community event, you can come up with, we can be there and I can tailor a financial education program for that special event, said Sherry Keating, member outreach representative at Dutrack. The unit was announced on Valentine's Day as a sort of love letter to Dutrack's members, Keating explained. Already, she said, multiple organizations have reached out with interest in booking the unit for upcoming events. An added benefit of the rotation across the tri-state area is the ability for members to stop by the truck for in-person assistance with navigating the credit union's app, website, and other digital offerings, Keating said. We're entering this digital age, which works to your advantage to get those services without having to go to a physical brick-and-mortar branch, she said. But you need to know how to use those tools first, and you're much more likely to use those if someone shows you how they work. The mobile unit currently is rotating between Dubuque-area Dutrack branches 
to introduce members to the new offering and its services. It then will begin its regional circuit to the credit union's more remote locations for the same purpose. A complete calendar of the mobile branches schedule is available online at dotrack.org slash mobile dash branch. Now we turn to our opinion page and our view, the quick takes that represent the editorial point of view of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald editorial board. And today we have three smiley faces again. Our first one, tourism outlook looks sunny for summer in Dubuque area. Come summertime, if you see hundreds of Studebakers rolling around Dubuque, don't worry, you're not caught in a time warp. That's just tourism season in Dubuque throttling up. In a post-COVID world, large gatherings and conventions were slow to return, but 2024 is revving up for a strong run. Studebakers Drivers Club members said to number 800, are due to arrive in Dubuque in late June, and another season of Viking River cruises should continue to see growth. The Port of Dubuque greeted 46,500 riverboat passengers in 2023, an increase of 6,300 passengers from 2022, as Viking completed its first full season at nearly full capacity and completed all of its scheduled visits. Huge youth baseball tournaments at the Field of Dreams in Dyersville, Iowa, also will contribute to tourism growth in 2024. The folks at Travel Dubuque show the hotel-motel occupancy rate hit 61.9% in 2023, a 4 percentage point increase over 2022, and 5.8 percentage points above the state average. Hotel-motel tax revenues amounted to $2.43 million in 2023, nearly double the $1.79 million collected in 2022. It's great to see local tourism officials hitting it out of the park on so many different fronts. Cheers to Travel Dubuque for creating opportunities to showcase all the greater Dubuque area has to offer. Our next smiley face. If you've got feedback about public safety in Dubuque, or just want to give the local officers in blue a salute, you can weigh in on the public portion of the Dubuque Police Department's accreditation process for 2024. Originally accredited by the Commission on Accreditation of Law Enforcement Agencies in July 1993, the department is working toward its ninth reaccreditation this year. The Commission has created a portal for the public to share comments and information regarding the agency's quality of service or other information relevant to the accreditation process. Public submissions go directly to the Commissioner, or Commission rather, and are not seen by the Dubuque Police Department. The public portal can be accessed via tinyurl.com slash DPD accreditation, or you can call 
Dubuque Police Department, Corporal Chris Gorell, 563-587-3806. 563-587-3806 for more information. Weigh in and help create an accurate portrait of the work done by local law enforcement. Our third smiley face. Though to Dubuque area residents, the building at 1201 Locust long has been known as the home of St. Mark's Youth Enrichment, the planned sale of the facility will help the organization direct more resources toward youth programs and advance its efforts to open an early childhood center. For more than 35 years, the program has called the Locust Street Building home. What initially was called St. Mark's Community Center launched with a group of 13 children who met once weekly. Eventually, organizers realized it was the programming, not the building, that was making such an impact, and the scope broadened to take programming into partner organizations, such as the Boys and Girls Club of Greater Dubuque, St. John's Episcopal Church, Western Dubuque Community School District facilities, and others. St. Mark Youth Enrichment now serves hundreds of students through its after-school and summer programs across Dubuque County. The group also provides school supplies for more than 3,000 local students through its annual Apples for Students initiative. Here's wishing the folks at St. Mark the best of luck in this new chapter and a note of gratitude for all the good works this nonprofit has done over the years. And now we also have one letter to the editor. Dubuque needs more rental inspectors. Zoe Fortson, Main Street, Dubuque member of Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement. On February 5th, the Dubuque City Council met and voted on proposed rental license fee increases for Dubuque's rental units. The vote was 6 to 1, with Council Member Katie Wethel being the lone nay vote. The primary reason for her no vote was the belief that the city should be increasing fees for the funding necessary to reach a three-year routine rental inspection cycle. Wethel was right to vote nay on this agenda item. Dubuque has been lagging behind the rest of the state on the frequency of routine rental inspections for years and until recently has been on a five-year rental inspection cycle. The average routine rental inspection cycle across the state is three years. With 90% of the rental inspection department's funding coming from rental licensing fees, we should be increasing those fees to be on par with the rest of the state. We should all be concerned with low-quality rentals in Dubuque. They're a threat to renters, they bring down property values, and they're a blight on our neighborhoods. Find the time to send an email to Wethel thanking her for her vote and email the rest of the council to ask for more rental inspections. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. And we are listening to the Friday, February 
16th edition of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald with Ken in the reader's seat, and we now turn to today's obituaries. Lois A. Maternack, Cascade. Lois Ann Maternack, 88, of Rural Cascade, passed away peacefully surrounded by her family Sunday, February 11th, at Mount Carmel Bluffs Care Center in Dubuque. Visitation for Lois will be held from 2 to 7 p.m. Sunday, February 18th, at Rife Funeral Home in Cascade, with a CDA rosary at 4.30 p.m. and a vigil service at 6.30 p.m. Friends may also call after 9 a.m. Monday, February 19th, at St. Martin's Catholic Church in Cascade. A funeral mass will be held for Lois at 10.30 a.m. Monday, February 19th at St. Martin's Catholic Church in Cascade with Reverend Neil Matternack presiding and Joe Shakamil as deacon. Reverend Mark Osterhaus and other clergy from the Archdiocese of Dubuque will concelebrate. Burial will be held at St. Peter's Cemetery in Temple Hill, Iowa. Lois was born on January 4, 1936, in Fillmore, Iowa, daughter of Joseph and Dolores Bogie-Gravel. She received her education at Sacred Heart Catholic School in Fillmore and graduated from St. Mary's Catholic High School in Cascade. On November 16, 1957, she was united in marriage to Lawrence A. Larry Matternack at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Fillmore. The couple farmed in rural Temple Hill. He preceded her in death on May 7, 2015. She was a member of St. Peter's Parish in Temple Hill and the Catholic Daughters of the Americas Blessed Mother Court Number 1926. Lois taught second grade CCD classes for 23 years, and she and Larry were a sponsor couple at Temple Hill. Lois was a loving mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother who truly enjoyed spending time with her family. She was known for her hospitality and her bread-making skills, especially her cinnamon rolls. Lois enjoyed playing many card games with family and friends, especially Euchre. Memorials may be directed to Aquan System Memorial Fund. An online video tribute may be viewed and online condolences sent to the family at www.rifefuneralhomeinc.com. Wilfred E. Smithson, Bellevue. Wilfred Eugene Smitty Smithson, age 86, passed away on February 6th at his home in Bellevue. Wilfred is survived by his wife, Phyllis, and others. A memorial service and celebration of life will be announced at a later time. Online condolences may be expressed to the family at www. HockmanFuneralHome.com Doris L. Brandle, Dyersville. 
Doris L. Brandle, age 85, of Dyersville, passed away at 4.32 a.m. Monday, February 12th, at Mercy One Dyersville Medical Center. To honor Doris's life, family and friends may visit from 9 a.m. until 10.45 a.m. Monday, February 19th, at Holy Spirit Parish, Sacred Heart Church, 2215 Windsor Avenue. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. on Monday at the church. Burial will be in Mount Calvary Cemetery. Bear Funeral Home is assisting the family. Doris was born September 1, 1938, in Dubuque, daughter of John and Lena Schultz Meyer. Doris graduated from St. Joseph Academy in Dubuque. Not long after that, she married the love of her life, Ronald Randall on December 28, 1957, at Sacred Heart Church. They spent 64 fun-filled years together before Ron passed away July 10, 2022. She was an excellent wife and mother who also worked with the Dubuque Community Schools. She spent 31 years at Central School before she finally decided it was time to retire. Doris loved her job there, and she and her co-workers always made sure their days were full of laughter. Doris was a wonderful hostess and loved to entertain. She was an outstanding cook and beautiful floral designer, both of which come in very handy when having family and friends over for special occasions. Doris also had a very thrifty side and enjoyed going to garage sales and thrift stores looking for treasures. In her younger days, she and Ron spent countless hours at their cottage on Esmond Island. Her faith was also an important part of her life, and she was a longtime member of Sacred Heart Church. Her family meant the world to Doris, and she made sure each and every person knew how special they were. The world was a better place because Doris was in it. She will be greatly missed. The family will thankfully receive your support through greeting cards and memorials in Doris's memory, which may be mailed to Bear Funeral Home, 1491 Main Street, Dubuque, Iowa, 52001. Attention, Doris Brandle Family. Online condolences may be left for the family at www. BearFuneralHome.com Norbert H. Smith Norbert H. Smith, age 85, of Dubuque, passed away at 5.58 p.m. Wednesday, February 14th at Mercy One, Dubuque, surrounded by his loving family. To honor Norb's life, family and friends may visit from 2 p.m. until 7 p.m. Sunday, February 18th at Saints Peter and Paul Church, 5131 Cheryl Road, Cheryl, Iowa. There will also be visitation from 9 a.m. until 10.15 a.m. before Mass at the church. The Mass of Christian Burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Monday, February 19th at Saints Peter and Paul Church with Reverend Tyler C. Raymond officiating. Burial will be in Saints Peter and Paul Cemetery. Bear Funeral Home is assisting Norb's family. 
Norb was born May 11, 1938, in Dubuque County, Iowa, son of William and Mary Canockel Smith. Norb attended St. Peter and Paul School in Sherrill. He was a lifelong dairy farmer in Sherrill before moving to Sageville in 1998. He was also a dealer for Archer Oil. Norb married the love of his life, Betty Schroeder, on June 10, 1961, at St. Francis of Assisi Church in Baltown. They were blessed with a large family and celebrated their 62nd wedding anniversary last year. Norb was very active in his community. He was a member of Saints Peter and Paul Church, the Catholic Order of Foresters, Hawkeye Vintage Farm Machinery Association, and the Tri-County Sportsman's Club. Norb also served on the Sherrill Fire Department for 34 years. In his free time, Norb enjoyed spending time outside watching the boys pull tractors, fishing, squirrel and deer hunting, working in his big garden, cutting wood, and a warm fire. He also liked watching gun smoke, westerns, and playing euchre with family and friends. Norb was an excellent role model for his family, always putting others before himself. He will be greatly missed by all who knew and loved him. The family will thankfully receive your support through greeting cards and memorials in Norb's memory, which may be mailed to Bear Funeral Home, 1491 Main Street, Dubuque, Iowa, 52001. Attention, Norb Smith family. Online condolences may be left for the family at www.bearfuneralhome.com. Com. Rachel Bartle. Rachel Bartle, 67, of Dubuque, passed away February 13th at home, surrounded by loved ones. In keeping with her wishes, private family services were held with a public celebration of life to be held on March 9th from 1 to 6 p.m. at the Oxus Grotto, 3011 Autumn Drive, Dubuque, 52002. Burial will be in Linwood Cemetery. Rachel was born March 31st, 1956, to Emil and Anna Mae Jackson Odding in Dubuque. She was a cook at a noble manor, Dubuque Senior High School, and area residential care. Rachel was an avid antique glass collector. She also loved teddy bears. Family brought great joy to Rachel and she loved spending time with her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Memorials, in lieu of flowers, memorials can be sent to the funeral home in care of the Rachel Bartle family. Greg A. Marcotte, Shellsburg. Greg A. Marcotte, 44, of Shellsburg, passed away Monday, February 12th. A celebration of life, gathering will be held on Saturday, April 6th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Howden Shield Funeral Home and Cremation Services in Cuba City. Burial will follow in the Evergreen Cemetery in Shellsburg. The Howden Shield Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cuba City, Wisconsin is serving the family. Greg was born June 9, 1979 to Henry and Alexis uh, Michnovitz Marcotte Jr. in Mahasset, New York. He worked for over 10 years at the Hoden Center in Mineral Point, Wisconsin. He was a kind and gentle person and helped those in need. 
Greg enjoyed drawing, playing guitar, especially for his clients. He loved a broad range of music, watching documentaries, road trips, but most of all, he enjoyed time spent with his family and friends. He will be sadly missed by all who knew and love him. Online condolences may be left for the family at www.howdenshieldfuneralhome.com. In lieu of flowers, plants, and such, a memorial fund for Greg's son, Atticus, has been established at Clare Bank. Dennis Elston, Dothan, Alabama. How does a daughter write an obituary for her mother? Excuse me, that was Denise Elston. My apologies. How does a daughter write an obituary for her mother? Through this pain, I will try. Denise Lee Betts Elston, 71, left this earthly plane at 7.55 a.m. Tuesday, February 13th at her home in Dothan, Alabama. She was draped in her father's Asbury coach jacket and embraced in my arms with her brother Donnie and husband Daniel by her side. She was born in Dubuque, Iowa, August 10th, 1952, the third of six children, daughter of Jonita Ball and Robert Betts. Denise graduated from Dubuque Senior High School in 1970. Her enthusiastic demeanor and helpful nature led her to waitressing at several establishments in Dubuque, Galena, and Rockford. She found her joy in taking care of people in every dimension of her life. She married Daniel Elston in 2000 in Rockford, where they spent many years traveling and enjoying tropical locations. Upon retirement, they moved to Dothan, Alabama. She loved to laugh and adored her four dogs, found solace in music, and adored her granddaughter, Gia. She is not gone in spirit, nor will she be forgotten. Please honor her life by offering random acts of kindness to others and enjoying the memories, laughter, and words she left you with. She has requested no formal services and will be cremated. Marilyn McDonald. Marilyn McDonald, 75 of debut, died Wednesday, February 14th. Visitation will be held from 9.30 to 10.15 a.m. Tuesday, February 20th at St. Patrick Catholic Church, where a mass of Christian burial will follow at 10.30 a.m. Burial will take place in Mount Olivet Cemetery in Key West. Hoffman, Schneider, and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory, 3860 Asbury Road, is assisting the family. Jessica M. Pitts. Springbrook, Iowa. Jessica M. Pitts, 39, of Springbrook, died Wednesday, February 14th. Visitation will be held from 1 to 4 p.m. Sunday, February 18th, at Saints Peter and Paul Catholic Church in Springbrook, where services will follow. Hockman Meyer Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Bellevue is assisting the family. Ansel Gullinger, Savannah. Ansel Gullinger, 84, of Savannah, died Wednesday, February 14th. Visitation will be held from 9 to 11 a.m. Saturday, February 17th, at Law Jones Funeral Home in Savannah, where a celebration of life will follow. John M. Duane, 
John M. Duane, 98, of Dubuque, died Wednesday, February 14th. Services will take place at a later date. Eaglehoff, Siegert, and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory, 2569 John F. Kennedy Road, is assisting the family. Now we turn to our news in brief. Dubuque woman receives deferred judgment for theft of daughter's funds. A Dubuque woman has been sentenced to two five years, two to five years of probation for taking funds from a conservatorship account created for her daughter. Tony L. Walker, 32, recently received the deferred judgment in Iowa District Court of Dubuque County after pleading guilty to a charge of first-degree theft. With a deferred judgment, the record of the case will be expunged if all probation obligations are met. According to the sentencing from Iowa District Court Judge Thomas Bitter, Walker also must pay $23,355 in restitution to her daughter. Ryan K. Walker, 45, of Iowa City, Iowa, also was charged with first-degree theft in connection with the incident, but that case was dismissed pending repayment of lost funds. Ryan and Tony Walker divorced in 2018. Court documents state that the Walkers were living in Dubuque in 2017 when they applied for a conservatorship after settling a personal injury claim for $54,820 on their daughter's behalf. The conservatorship was granted and the money was deposited into the account of a Dubuque credit union. Documents state that the account had been closed and that all the funds were missing as of January 2023. Bank statements showed that approximately $29,000 was transferred from the conservatorship account into an account named Ryan 48, with Ryan Walker having sole access to the account, documents state. Another $25,000 was taken from the account in general withdrawals by Tony Walker, documents state. Dubuque man sentenced to two years of probation for assaulting a teen. A Dubuque man has been sentenced to two years of probation for assaulting an area teen. Willie A. Wilson, 41, recently received the sentence from Iowa District Associate Judge Mark Hostegger in Iowa District Court of Dubuque County after pleading guilty to charges of child endangerment and assault causing bodily injury. As part of a plea deal, a charge of assault with a dangerous weapon was dismissed. Court documents state that Wilson punched a 14-year-old boy multiple times during a November 24th altercation at a Dubuque residence. The assault caused bruising on the teenager. Candidates sought for Dubuque County Dairy Royalty. The Dubuque County Dairy Princess is open to 16 to 20-year-olds who live or work on dairy farm or who have an active interest in the dairy industry. Little Miss Dairy Maid and Prince Farming candidates should be between the ages of 6 and 9 as of January 1st and be the daughter or son of parents or grandparents who are actively engaged in the production of milk and who live in Dubuque County. Royalty applications are due by March 23rd. Judging for the royalty will take place at 9 a.m. March 30th at St. Patrick's Catholic Church, 102 First Street Southeast in Epworth. For more information, contact Elizabeth Elsinger, 
1-800-242-2949. Southwest Tech to host free small business clinic, Fenimore. Southwest Wisconsin Technical College is set to host a small business clinic next month. The free clinic will take place from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. March 4th at the college through its collaboration with the Southwest Wisconsin Small Business Development Center and the Small Business Development Center at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Business owners can sign up for a variety of one-on-one sessions with experts in fields such as financials, marketing, and business law. Each session lasts 30 minutes, and entrepreneurs can sign up for as many sessions as they please. Spanish consultation services will be available between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. Interested entrepreneurs can register for the clinic online or by calling 608-716-9441. Registrations open for three-part Platteville series on parenting, scheduled for May and June. The Platteville Parent Cafe series will be held from 5.15 to 7.30 p.m. on three Tuesdays, May 28th and June 11th and June 25th at Family Connections of Southwest Wisconsin, 1065 Lancaster Street, according to a press release. Topics for each session include Thriving in Summer, that's the May topic, Tending Your Garden, Taking Time for Self-Care, June 11th, and Schools Out, Don't Sweat Summer Stress, June 25th. Each event includes a meal, child care, resource bags, and education. Reserve a spot online at tinyurl.com slash Parents. Donation from charity to provide sleep sacks for more than 100 newborns at the hospital. A donation will help newborn babies sleep at a Dubuque hospital. Unity Point Health Finley Hospital recently received 108 sleep sacks to promote safe sleeping for newborns from Variety, the children's charity, according to a press release. The release states that the new sacks will be provided, in addition to a sleep sack provided by Finley, to newborns at the hospital. The hospital has received support from Variety for years, including help with equipment for a pediatric therapy clinic and a rapid digital baby weight scale. And now we have our weekend buzz, the noteworthy things to do this weekend in the Tri-States. Fruit tree pruning demonstration today, Convivium Urban Farmstead, 2811 Jackson, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., instructor and convivium farm manager A.J. Schultz will teach attendees how he tends to the nonprofit's fruit trees and offers tips on how to care for your own. No registration is required and admission is free. Winter Bounce, today and Saturday, Jackson County Fairgrounds, Makokoda, 3 to 8 p.m. today, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Saturday. Uh, Bounce house, obstacle courses, and even more games will be available at the fairgrounds. Children attending need to be accompanied by an adult, and anyone wanting to use the inflatables must either bring grippy socks or wear ones available for purchase for $4.00. Admission is $10 per person using the attractions. Adult guardians get in for free. Tickets available at the door. Battle for the Bluff. 
Today and Saturday, 5 Flag Center, 405 Main Street. Doors open at 6 p.m. today, 5.30 p.m. Saturday. Sandbur Rodeo Productions Incorporated returns to the Five Flag Center with an action-packed, family-friendly show. Before the show on Saturday, the arena will host a kids' event where youngsters can meet rodeo clowns and riders, ride ponies, and compete in a stick horse race. Mission $21 to $30 for ages 15 and over, $10 for ages 14 and under. Greater Dubuque Home and Builder Show, today through Sunday, Grand River Center, 500 Bell Street, 4 to 8 p.m. Today, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Saturday, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Sunday. Dubuque Home Builders and Associates will host a showing of home products and services, remodeling and interior design ideas. General admission is $5 for ages 13 and over, free for ages 12 and under with an adult. 